Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street. And this is episode 203 of the Lawyerist podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Will Hornsby about ethics and innovation. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Smokeball, New Law Business Model, and Law Clerk. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned and we'll tell you more about them later on. I was blown away that we had multiple people reach out to us after our 200th episode telling us that they have actually listened to all 200 episodes. That's awesome. Yes. And so those four people are going to get a special gift from us, <laughs> which I will be ordering today, which means it will be arriving to them in a bit. That's awesome. I'm uh, very excited. Thanks for those of you who did and got back to us. That was cool. I can't promise that this is a rolling contest offer <laughs> where a year from now, if you reach out to us and say you've now caught up to all 200 episodes, that you'll still get the same gift, but maybe. Maybe. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> we like to do weird things for people, so. Yes, but yeah. Jen Longton, David Colarusso, John Strohmeyer, and Forrest Carlson our lawyerists, all-time VIP listeners. Yeah, you guys rock. Thanks. Yes. Sort of on a similar note, since both Jen Longton and John Strohmeyer are current members of the Lawyerist Lab, we are starting to recruit for the fourth cohort of the lab. It will be launching on February 1st, but we're already in the recruiting process. So if you've been curious about the program and want to chat with Stephanie more about what it looks like and whether it's a good fit for you, uh, you can go to lawyerist.com slash lab to learn more about it. If the idea of having sort of a personal trainer for your law firm to help you learn how to grow and improve your law firm isn't compelling enough on its own, then you're probably not thinking in a businessy way. But if that's not compelling enough on its own, one of the things that we do in the lab is we invite experts and interesting people to do workshops that are exclusive to lab members. And some of those are the same people who are book club authors and who come on the podcast to talk about those things. So for example, Greg Crabtree, who was recently on the podcast to talk about finances and financial strategy, did an hour long, or maybe it was a 30 minute, but did a workshop that was well attended by lab members uh, and was exclusive to them. So that's one of the kind of perks that you get for being in the lab that may not be obvious. So if you're interested in asking some questions that you think I ought to have asked, or you just want a chance to connect with some of the great guests that we've had and book club authors, maybe it's worth applying to lab and seeing if it's a good fit for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't say that workshops pay for lab <laughs> all on their own, but honestly, the opportunity to have some kind of one-on-one -on -one Q and A yeah. with some of the top business book authors around is pretty cool. That's pretty cool. No, I mean, lab will pay for itself because yes. your business will make more money. <laughs> 100% guaranteed. But the workshops are a nice perk too. So now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Kristen Tyler from Law Clerk, and then we'll hear from Will Hornsby. Hi, I'm Kristen Tyler, one of the co-founders of Law Clerk. Hi, Kristen. I'm so glad to have you back on the podcast to talk about how lawyers can claw back some of their holiday time. 
Maybe we should start by talking about, obviously, freelancers and how freelancers can help. But who are we talking about when we talk about freelancers? What's What kind of people could our listeners hire to get some of that time back? Right. So I think your listeners might be pleasantly surprised at the breadth and experience of our freelance lawyers. So, you know, the freelancers are not all junior attorneys just starting out. We have some really seasoned, experienced people out there that you can tap into on demand when you need an extra set of hands. For example, we've got a great freelance lawyer. She is down in Texas. She worked for the EPA for 10 years has since left that role, opened her own shop. So she's a true solo in Texas, practicing in estates, family law, business issues. But with her background litigating for the EPA, she has become one of our top rated, highly demanded freelance lawyers because of her litigation skills. And people hire her to do all sorts of things, drafting motions, doing research, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Another example that I love to tell people about is we also have another freelancer out of the San Francisco area. His name's John. He, his background is he's a Harvard trained lawyer. He's practiced for over 25 years and he's now semi-retired. And he's told us that law clerk is a great tool for him to stay in the game, stay a little bit busy because he doesn't want to golf every day, but he does want to have time to spend with his grandkids. And so this is a great solution for him and he can pick up, you know, one or two projects a week as it fits into his schedule. But you're able to tap into his decades of bankruptcy litigation experience in particular and use that to aid your own case. And you just, you can't get that kind of value anywhere else. It's amazing. So assuming somebody wants to, is excited about that, wants to be like, hey, help me clear my plate. Where do I start? Like, what are some ideas for the most efficient ways to clear some time and, and get some tasks off? Sure. So first off, I would encourage you, it's a hectic time of year. If you've been thinking about giving us a try and you haven't yet, now's the time. So really super easy to sign up, create your account, get started. If you need any help, reach out to us. But some things that you could do that are super super time consuming that might help you are maybe you have a CLE or a conference you're presenting at later this month or next month and you need help getting your materials together. You wish you had an associate to do that for you. Why not hire one of our freelance lawyers to come in and draft a CLE outline for you or do some research on an issue to aid your presentation? We've been seeing a lot of that lately. Hmm. Of course, people use it for research projects, for drafting any sort of written document. But have you thought about getting it to get some new blog articles for your law firm website? You know, if you're trying to gear up and get prepped for 2019, you want to be ready to go with fresh content. You can hire our freelance lawyers to write really clever, interesting blog articles on a variety of topics to aid your website and keep it fresh for your clients or potential clients, which is exciting. We've also seen people use the site to connect with other lawyers and other jurisdictions or their own jurisdiction to get subject matter expertise. So for example, we recently had a, uh, I think it was a Texas lawyer, again, Texas, hire a law clerk in Florida who had employment law experience because they just had a couple of questions and they basically wanted to pay for a phone consultation to pick this person's brain on this particular issue, knowing that it could lead to other work. So there's all sorts of things when it comes to discovery as well. Kind of like a very informal co-counseling. Exactly. Very informal. Mm -hmm. Literally just, I, I need someone to be able to throw this up against and see what's going on. So, you know, it's, uh, I was always told to offer to pay for someone's time when you call up another lawyer to pick their brain. And I suppose the law clerk is just that idea, right? I am going to pay you for your time and, and here's the structure under which I'm doing it. Right, exactly. And the great thing is with our flat fee project pricing, you have total control over what you're going to spend. So you set the price and if people are willing to help you out for that price, you name there you go. Very cool. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Law Clerk, you can go to lawclerk.legal slash lawyerist. 
And there's a white paper there about the business and ethics of freelancing. Plus, obviously, you can learn more about Law Clerk and sign up. That link will also be in the show notes. Kristen, thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks, Sam. I hope you enjoy the holiday season. You too. Hi, Sam. I'm Will Hornsby, and I maintain a law practice after having served at the American Bar Association as staff counsel for 30 years. My practice focuses on the intersection of ethics and opportunity, where I'm working with lawyers, legal marketers, and innovators to understand the ethics rules in ways that are designed to expand access to legal services. Hi, Will. I'm so glad you're with us today. And I've always been amused by the title of staff counsel because it has the distinction of describing nothing at all. (laughs) So, (laughs) but I encountered you in a bunch of different ways. You tended to be a common speaker at tech conferences. You've been involved in innovation discussions about the profession. Maybe you could say a little bit more about what your work at the ABA was because it was significant and substantial. Yeah, thanks, Sam. I staffed the Standing Committee on Delivery of Legal Services, which is a small committee of nine ABA members, and it has a mission of expanding access to legal services for people of moderate income who have a little too much to qualify for legal aid or subsidized legal services, but not enough for full and traditional services. So Mm -hmm. we focused on a wide variety of alternative methods of providing legal services and representation including advancing court self-help centers, including unbundled legal services, including the efficiencies with technology. And we worked with a lot of different entities within the ABA, but that was my primary job there, even though I provided staff support for several other entities, including a couple of presidential initiatives, most of which revolved around creating better access to affordable legal services. You know, Will, I, we, you and I talked about this roadmap, and I've got it here, but um, listening to you just now, I just realized I can't pass up the opportunity because you and I have talked back and forth a little bit, um, Twitter, email, whatever, around how do we talk about the size of that gap, the gap between people who are entitled to free legal services and people who can actually afford to hire a lawyer. You know, there's like this 80% figure pops up all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. what can we really say about the size of that piece of the market or the population, however you want to describe it? Yeah, first of all, I think the 80% figure is nonsense. Uh, I've never seen seen any any legitimate data that justifies that. It's quite likely that a, you know, obviously a higher percentage of low-income people have uh, the opportunity to get representation and legal services that they need and are obviously in need of alternative methods of acquiring that assistance, including uh, pro se support functions. But for moderate income people, there's a wide variety of ways in which they can access legal services, contingency fees, obviously, for personal injury, workers' comp, for human rights violations, things like that. Those are frequently done on contingency fee basis, so there's not a big gap there. On the other hand, contested divorces frequently run into five figures. doesn't necessarily have to, but when there's a contest, when there's a dispute about child support, that sort of thing, the one-on-one model of representation especially when it's combined with the hourly billing, creates a a circumstance where those costs just become unaffordable to working class people in a very quick way. So, you know, I don't think it's really 
important to gauge the percentage or the quantity. I think we just all recognize that there's a need for reform to enable more people to have access to better legal services in an affordable way. You know, somebody said to me once, and maybe it was even you, that talking about the access to justice gap is a little bit of maybe the wrong way to talk about it because everybody's legal problems get resolved one way or another, (laughs) just maybe not with any help or in a favorable way. And so there's a lot more going on there. And when I listen to people like, I think the previous, or maybe she's coming up to her end of her term, Hillary Bass, when she was talking about access to justice, it really sounds like what she's talking about is access to lawyers, not access to the kinds of tools and systems and services that I think about when I think of how can we get legal justice tools into the hands of more people. I'm wondering how you think about that. Is it Are we talking about access to lawyers yeah. or are we really talking about different things? Well, my first reaction to your uh, question, by the way, you did not quote me to myself. So, okay, good. Um, <laughs> I'll look forward to that happening another time. But uh, there's been some outstanding research by uh, Professor Rebecca Sanford yeah. at uh, the University of Illinois. She's a, an ABF scholar and a MacArthur genius. So it's great to have somebody working in this area to be recognized at that status. And her research indicates that actually a very small percentage of people with a problem that has a legal solution, and that's how she tends to define this, a very small percentage of them actually use the justice system, and even a smaller percentage obviously use lawyers for dispute resolution. And in in certain circumstances, that's a, a decision that consumers make that has a wisdom behind it. It's not a value a lot of times to hire a lawyer or to take the time off from work to go to multiple court appearances to resolve something that uh, is is not significant enough to justify that expense. I guess, Um, you know, that's an interesting perspective because like the legal problem itself is a big pain in the ass and a hassle to deal with. But hiring a lawyer is its own kind of a hassle and a pain in the ass sometimes. Right, (laughs) right. Right. And we do need more research to determine the decision making when people do that. Do they do that from a a basis where they are rationally deciding the cost benefit of doing that? You know, the whole the Supreme Court decisions on lawyer advertising are all predicated on creating better access and avenues to lawyers. So let me finish by going back to what you said about um, Hillary Bass. It certainly should be no surprise to anyone that the president of the ABA, as well as many others involved in the ABA, a membership organization, actually advocates that there be better, more use of lawyers. And when I was there, that was kind of a guiding principle for us. We looked at ways in which we could link people to lawyers, both in the marketplace and in subsidized circumstances, pro bono and legal aid. Uh, where people could get that assistance. And there are others in the ABA that are uh, advancing models that are technology-based that are not uh, necessarily oriented toward for people to get a lawyer. They're oriented toward solutions more so. And a lot of the technology work that's being done is very problem-solution oriented and uh, may or may not include lawyers. For example, there's support for ODR, online dispute resolution, that can be an aspect of uh, small claims courts and can be done without a lawyer. And there's a terrific model in Vancouver that uh, does that online, uh, and it's cost-effective, and uh, people are benefiting from that. 
but lawyers do not play a significant role in that. Actually, if, if listeners are interested in hearing more about that, we had Shannon Salter on the podcast to talk about that oh. in episode 157. She's awesome. It was a really cool yeah. conversation about how to do online dispute resolution by kind of throwing out the uh, preconceived notions that people have and building it, you know, like you would a software startup. It was, it was great. Mm-hmm. I think we, in a happy accident, we've gone off on a tangent and come back to a nice place where like, if we're talking about innovative solutions that help bring more justice to that gap, whatever it looks like, although it's complicated, one of the flags that's often raised then is, well, we can't do it because the ethics rules are standing in the way. And that's what you and I had really planned to talk about, uh-huh. because I know that you are, by and large, of the position that the ethics rules, they're not roadblocks, they're just sort of road signs, and you need to figure out how to comply with them and work with them, and you can still do a lot of innovation without whinging about the rules. Yeah, my perspective, there there clearly are rules that create obstacles and prohibit certain models, certain delivery models. But what I am spending my time doing now is exploring ways, both on behalf of clients and outside of that work, to understand the rules, to navigate them, and to be able to pursue innovation. You know, there's a couple of common myths. Can I talk for a minute about some of the myths that I hear? Yeah, I think that's a great idea because I think the biggest obstacle that the rules have is the chilling effect of people who are just afraid to explore their limits and learn to navigate them. Right, right. So practically speaking, we have 51 set of, I could say 52 sets of rules. We have the 50 states BC and we have the ABA model rules, right? That would create 52 sets of rules. Uh, Virtually none of them. I I don't think, well, let me put it this way. None of them are identical. Right. (laughs) Uh, Every state. And so what happens is states take the ABA rules with great thought and deliberation and sometimes years of deliberation, often years of deliberation to just wind up with some very minor changes. States will take those rules and they are intended for states to take those rules consider them, adopt them. And what we find is they consider them, change them, and then adopt those changes. And so we don't have any uniformity. One of the things I think is kind of funny about uh, the development of the rules, is the, the, the model rules were issued in 1983, and rule 8.5 is the last model rule. It was an amendment that I think came 12 years later. I could be wrong about that time frame, but came sometime later. And 8.5 addresses choice of laws and jurisdictional authority. So for the first decade or so of the model rules, the ABA just assumed that everybody would adopt all of the rules and there'd oh, be right. no need to have any rule that <laughs> um, dealt with uh, differences from one jurisdiction to another. And then they recognized, yeah, maybe there is a need for that. And they adopted 8.5. That's actually one of the things that really does make it hard is like, yeah. Any attempt to build something that crosses a jurisdictional border just multiplies the difficulty of compliance by the number of jurisdictions you want to practice in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So here are a couple of myths that I hear. One myth is if I comply with the ABA model rules, I'll be okay. Right. <laughs> uh, and I'm I, I, I'm amazed. Um, and, and when I worked at the ABA, I, I heard that from practitioners with some frequency and was always amazed by that. Hmm. And the problem is uh, for many states, the ABA 
is a more liberal interpretation of what you can and can't do. Now, there, uh, there are some significant restrictions that we can talk about, but by and large, if you uh, abide by the ABA model rules, you're not going to abide by the rules of your state because the rules of your state probably, and it's certainly true for advertising, have greater restrictions and what you're able to do. So that's kind of an important caveat because we always default to talking about the model rules because we're trying to talk right. to 50 states in Canada, but yeah. Right, right. And, and and the other thing that's important is if we have efforts, when we have efforts to change the model rules, which frequently somebody is undertaking. So when we have those efforts, um, we change the model rules, then we go back to the states and we ask the states to consider those changes and some do and some don't. Right. If the ABA decides to get rid of non-lawyer ownership, it doesn't affect anybody until states start adopting it. Right. Unless and until a state adopts those rules, they have no force and effect. The other thing I hear, and I hear this a lot from uh, large firm marketing folks, is that if you comply with the lowest common denominator of state restrictions, you'll be okay. And the problem with that is that there is no continuum of, could say, liberal to conservative uh, rules. There Mm -hmm. are certain states that have more restrictive rules than other states, but the point is that many of the rules are just different. Mm-hmm. So that comes into play with disclaimers, and we see disclaimers when we see television advertising for personal injury. At the end of those commercials, we see a block of disclaimers, and those disclaimers are designed for those firms to comply with the different state rules. And so if you choose the most restrictive, or Florida is the most restrictive, uh, but Missouri has a disclaimer, or New York has a disclaimer that applies uh, that's not included in the Florida or Louisiana rules, then you're not going to hit that target. You're not yeah. going to be compliant when you have a multi-state practice and multi-state and an obligation to comply with multi-state rules. So unfortunately, people ask me a lot, how do you deal with the 50-state rules? And, and, and the answer is it's complicated. <laughs> the answer is one at a time, yeah. basically. I mean, you right. really have to... Uh, understand what those are or assume the risk. And there are certainly lots of lawyers who decide that they're going to assume the risk, not complying. And for some, it's okay. For others, there's serious uh, consequences. Mm -hmm. I'm tempted to climb up on my soapbox and go on a tirade about disclaimers. But instead, um, we need to take a few minutes to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, um, we're going to take on some of the most common topics that people raise as presenting ethical problems and try and talk some sense into those topics. So we'll be back in a minute. Smokeball practice management software exists to streamline small law firms and reduce the stress of running a small business. With Smokeball, your firm is much more organized, productive, and profitable, meaning you and your staff can breathe easy with less stress. Visit smokeball.com lawyers today to learn more and book a demo. Like what you see? Lawyerist podcast listeners are eligible for 50% off onboarding. With Smokeball at your firm, it's less stress and more success. If you're not 100% happy with your law practice right now, chances are you want more. More income from your practice, more fulfillment from your work, and more freedom to enjoy your life. There is a new law business model that is allowing passionate attorneys to reclaim their lives and love practicing law again. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers for over a decade on the new law business model she created to build her own million-dollar law practice. And now, the lawyers she has trained in that new law business model have their own high six- and seven-figure law practices, all without sacrificing time with their families and only working with clients they love to serve. 
It is possible to experience the exhilaration of a thriving law practice, do the most meaningful legal work, have a real impact in your clients' lives, and have complete control over your schedule. Discover this new law business model now by watching the free video workshop series at newlawbusinessmodel.com lawyerist. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those who use traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can easily accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 48 state bars. LawPay. Okay, we're back. So if you had to pick a thing where people say the ethics rules just make this difficult or impossible, what's kind of the biggest one that you hear about? Well, let me walk you through flow of money. Is that okay? Yeah, because I mean, that's a hot topic right now. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. And right. And I'll refer listeners to the Virginia Legal Ethics Opinion 1885 for a uh, what I characterized on Twitter the other day as a well-written, comprehensive opinion that creates an enormous obstacle to affordable legal services. Okay. So let's talk about scaling a technology-based client matching service. Okay. So that client matching service and uh, Avo's uh, fixed fee uh, service was an example of that. And that's what the Virginia ethics opinion was based on. Mm -hmm. So you can have one of two things. You can have either a an entity that's not a lawyer. It can be a corporate entity with lawyers involved with it, but still not a law firm, not a lawyer, making referrals. Okay. And in that circumstance, model rule 7.2 governs. 7.2B says that a lawyer may not give anything of value for the recommendation of the lawyer's services. And then it has a series of exceptions, and the ones that are applicable to us in this conversation are the reasonable cost of advertisements and the usual charges of a nonprofit or state-approved lawyer referral service. So implicit in that, a lawyer may not pay to participate in a for-profit lawyer referral service that's not approved by the state. Now, the fact of the matter is California and maybe only one or two other states have an approval method. So fundamentally, if you're going to scale this, a lawyer cannot pay to participate in a for-profit lawyer referral service. Such as AVO Legal Services in this case, right? Right, yeah. right. So the question is, what is a lawyer referral service? What is the dichotomy between that and an advertising service? And there's some authority on that that has to do with whether or not the entity exercises judgment in the selection of a lawyer. If it does, it's a referral service. If it doesn't, it can be advertised. It can be a group advertising model. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Uh, that can be dealt with and overcome. Now, if you want to embrace, a, uh, advance a delivery model that can generate revenue, uh, that can uh, accommodate this marketplace, uh, you can do that as a nonprofit and still pay yourself, <laughs> be paid, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> but you can't do it as a for-profit company. Right. So that means yeah. that you can't create capital in that. Uh, and obviously, there's restrictions in the capitalization of it, and you can't sell it for a profit, and, which is what 
entrepreneurs and you know, lots of innovators hope to do, have an, begin a project with an exit strategy, right? So the other option is if a law firm or a, a lawyer or a law firm wants to have this type of model then governed by rule one point, ABA model rule 1.5E, and 1.5E says that lawyers who are not in the same firm may divide fees under a set of circumstances. One of those circumstances is by proportionality. So if you both work the case, you can decide you did 30%, I did 70%. That's how we're going to divide it. My understanding is it basically means being co-counsel and deciding how you pay each other. Yeah. but Effectively. But, but proportionality is probably far uh, less common than mm-hmm. a, uh, than what amounts to a referral, okay? And so if you're going to have a model that, you know, an online model that has a national scale or a multi-state scale, then the problem with this is Rule 5.5, ABA Model Rule 5.5, says that a lawyer may not practice in a jurisdiction that the lawyer is not admitted where the lawyer has a systematic or continuous presence, and that need not be limited to an office. So looping this back to 1.5, I know this is a little wonky, but (laughs) stay stay with me here. Looping this back to 1.5, one of the obligations in 1.5 when you divide fees that are not proportional is that you have this legal fiction of mutual supervision. So both the, the referring lawyer and the and the lawyer who's doing the work has to supervise the other. Mm. And and so if you're not admitted in the state where the referral is, then you can't supervise. Then you risk you risk violation of five point five because you have yeah. a systematic and continuous presence. Unless you just do it once in a while, which is not scaling, right? Not taking advantage mm-hmm. of the technology. So one of the options there is to have lawyers in a law firm who are admitted in enough states that make this worthwhile. So maybe you'll have five lawyers who are admitted in five states each, and you can do this in 25 states, something like that. One one of the recurring themes, I, I think, when we're talking about ethics rules and innovation is you can absolutely do just about anything you want, but it really requires you to... Uh, that's Maybe that's a little too broad, but still, mm-hmm. um, like... Avo would be okay if Avo were a law firm. And this is all a little bit moot now because Avo got sold to internet brands or whatever, and they're, mm-hmm. they're getting rid of the, right. the Avo legal services component. So in a sense, total attorneys went under, um, Avo legal services went under, and this is all moot, and nobody's really got to worry about this anymore until the next startup comes along. But but if the next startup is helmed by a lawyer and founded as a law practice, um, they could technically comply with all of these rules. It just probably is more work than they want to do. It's either more work or it's too limited in its yeah. return. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the theme is like, you know, you can be a legal services tech startup and deliver services any way you want. You just have to be also a law firm. And that's actually a pretty big barrier. Yes. And, and that's my point about the rules as a whole, you know, is that mm-hmm. you, they, they can be dealt with in ways that accommodate better access, affordable delivery. But there are these barriers that uh, you just can't do it the way that it might make best sense or have the best business model. Should we continue pushing for changes to the rules then? I mean, it's not what you're saying is not that the rules are fine and you should just comply with them. 
right? No, I'm not saying I'm not saying that. No, they, <laughs> they create they create obstacles. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, I think we should continue to push for changes, and I, I think changes are are fundamental. I think that part of our problem with with envisioning the future of the governance of the legal profession is that we're doing it in a silo. Mm. And we're not thinking in terms of changes in society, for example. So what's the impact of autonomous cars uh, on personal injury, on, on DWI? Yeah. Um, nobody's thinking about that. And so our regulations and, and what I hear from people involved with uh, the ethics rules is that is that technology moves so fast we can't anticipate change. And I'm not convinced that that's the case. I think that you know, one of the things that we've done that the ABA has done in particular is to broaden the rules to kind of foundational principles. So, for example, the changes that the ABA adopted in August 2018, last August, made the prohibition of false or misleading advertising as the cornerstone. It's mm-hmm. always been a, an integral piece. But basically, it says you can advertise, but you can't advertise in a way that's false or misleading. It's a little more restrictive in its governance of solicitation or direct contacts. But I think what's important here is if we look at the advertising rules around the states, a lot of them get into micromanagement. That's really um, uh, creates a struggle for multi-state communications. So the foundational principle of uh, rules seven, section seven of the ABML rules, those that govern advertising, is is the prohibition of advertisements that are false and misleading. Now, on the one hand, that creates a little bit more difficulty in interpretation of what is false and misleading, as opposed to a litany of you can't do this, you can't do that. Right. On the other hand, it permits say, a common sense approach that helps lawyers determine whether or not what they're doing is appropriate. Now, we could do the same thing for the rules that limit our interactions with non-lawyers and our relationship with non-lawyers. So 5.4 is entitled independence of judgment. Right. So we could have a rule that says you cannot work in a structure that limits your independence of judgment, which could accommodate the infusion of capital from people who are not lawyers, from corporations, from entities. And uh, as long as that's done in a way that doesn't uh, create an impingement on the lawyer's judgment. And so it seems to me that the concept of addressing real changes can be predicated on broader principles rather than the specifics um, shalls and shall not that we currently have. That sounds fundamentally sound to me. I'm super intimidated by the prospect of trying to get, you know, all 52 jurisdictions to go along with that. And I'm wondering, do you see much hope or do you see real hope in some of the grassroots movements? You know, I know like Patrick Pallas uh, and others have tried to organize kind of a, a series of working groups to think through problems and try and, and get the ball rolling on broader change within the profession. And I think that's really awesome and I'm optimistic, but I'm also pessimistic that anything can actually result from it because the state seems so, I mean, the apparatus of the legal industry seems so difficult to to move and change. Yeah. 
it's it's an uphill battle. There's no question about that. Um, but I think that what we need to do is figure out how to be collaborative. We need the we, we need the uh, organized bar behind it. We need practitioners who don't consider themselves part of the organized bar to get behind changes. It, it, it's strange to me that practitioners would support rules in their states that inhibit them from communicating with prospective clients yeah. in in ways that are not necessarily necessary. Uh, it, 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 we need the law schools. We need the courts. It needs to be a really collaborative effort. And that's what I mean by, you know, in, in, in one sense, we work in silos where we, you know, how many, there's less than a dozen members of the ABA Standing Committee on Ethics. Right. It's not, it's not that hard to have an influence. <laughs> they're, the, they're the ones who are writing those opinions. They're the ones who are, are advocating for the uh, state adoption of the, of the rule changes they make. They're the ones who are the gatekeepers of the rules. It's a very small group, and it's, those lawyers are tremendously insightful and dedicated to their participation in that committee. But nevertheless, I don't think there's anyone there that is a technologist. Right. I don't think there's anyone there that I, – I could be wrong about this, but they rotate. So I, I'm not sure exactly who's on the committee right now. But frequently, they don't have personal legal service practitioners on that committee or, or most ABA committees for that matter. So you know, on the one hand, we need to expand the opportunity for these changes. Now, you know, the professional responsibility lawyers – was uh, very instrumental in the changes to the ad rules. They mm -hmm. had promulgated their own uh, uh, set of uh, recommendations, and the ethics committee took those as a starting point and made some changes to them. But nevertheless, that was the incentive for that. April is also advancing, uh, has a futures committee that has various subcommittees that are looking at uh, rules from an access perspective. Uh, and one of the things I'm doing now, Sam, uh, in my free time is I'm doing a paper that catalogs the current rules that create obstacles to uh, access. Oh, cool. And, you know, we, we had talked before about unbundling as part of that. Yeah. So, we, we, so the ABA in, I think, 2002 amended a rule, uh, to, it's 1.2c, that says that a, a lawyer may limit the scope of representation so long as it's reasonable under the circumstances and the client gives informed consent, uh, which is a tremendous advancement yeah. from not having any direction on that. But it still creates encumbrances to or impediments to certain unbundled methodologies, for example, document preparation, online document preparation. If you do that pursuant to a, 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 an attorney-client relationship, if you, first of all, if you don't do that pursuant to an attorney-client relationship, you stand at risk of it being the unauthorized practice right. of law. <laughs> uh, but second, if you do it pursuant to an attorney-client relationship, how do you put up, how do you as a practitioner put up a site where people can come and, and have fillable forms that turn into um, court-approved documents that you sell as an unbundled piece of the services, and that's maybe all those, some of those clients want to buy. How do you do that with informed consent? You're right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you check a box? 
how do you determine whether it's reasonable under the circumstances for somebody to use those forms? Well, and I guess that brings uh, us back, are, right? We were, we, were yeah. we, we got off to talking about what we wish the rules would be, but the reality is if you want to practice in this current marketplace um, and in this industry, you have to obey the rules first. Mm-hmm. And so, but how do you take that idea of, okay, well, here's how I want to deliver legal services and I want it to be automatable through forms on a website or whatever. Mm-hmm. How do you take that and decide how the rules apply to that when there isn't clear guidance and you're probably afraid that if you ask the question of the ethics board, they're going to make a stupid, uninformed uh, opinion about it? <laughs> yeah, well, that's why that's why I'm here for you. Um, <laughs> I'll make a stupid, but informed opinion. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it just can you change that model in a way that's compliant with these rules? That's yeah. the question. And, and sometimes, frankly, the answer is no. But other times, it's and this is you know the clients I have worked with that I love the most are the ones that I have a conversation with. So I say, okay, here's your. They say, here's my idea, and I say, okay, here are the issues that we need to address. And they come back and they say, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? That's uh, puzzle solving, and I and and that's the kind of thing that I really love to spend my time on. I mean, how how do you talk about? Because I know a lot of lawyers. You know what? It's safest just to stay within the very clear, um, find the brightest uh-huh. line, and then stay on on the the good side of that. Because I never want to get embroiled in uh, an ethics dispute or in a lawsuit where. I have to fight about it because then I, you know, it ruins the whole thing. How do you talk about assessing risk when it comes to the ethics rules? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's different uh, pressure points for risk. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- there's the risk of disciplinary action. And frankly, if you look at the statistics from the state disciplinary agencies, advertising is not one of those. Um, the flow of money is mm-hmm. sometimes those, but the fundamental problems are found with, and and the great majority of problems, both for discipline and malpractice, have to do with client neglect. Right. Right. So uh, first of all, client neglect and and, uh, blowing statutes, that sort of thing. And so first of all, you have to understand that you risk with an unbundled model or a technology-based delivery system or just different types of advertising from a disciplinary perspective is rather limited. But there are other risks. Well, and if you make your clients really happy and, and other lawyers in your state get jealous, then they're going to file yeah. a complaint against right. you. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, so I always tell people, you know you're a success when somebody files a disciplinary complaint against you, <laughs> um, when a competitor does. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, but but there's also other risks. So, for example, in class actions, if they, they, they uh, recruit clients into the class, in ways that are not consistent with the rules, then they're subject to challenge as, as uh, the uh, representative of the class. So that's a risk for large firms. If they do a branding campaign that's inconsistent with the rules, then uh, all of the time and effort that they've spent in in advancing that can in developing and advancing that campaign uh, is wasted. Um, and, and so there, you know, so there's different types of risks to be assumed, but your point, I think, uh, is well taken that a vast majority of lawyers want to play it safe without diving into what the range of possibilities are. Mm -hmm. And so what we have to do is we have to depend on there being 
people who are interested in knowing more about how they can create these models, interested in advancing different models, interested in figuring out how that can be done within the constraints of the rules that apply to them. And, um, and, and if they are right, they will become more successful, right? So it's the yeah. it's innovation model, right? Uh, that the the innovators, the the insurgents will take over, right? So if they're right and they do it in a way that's compliant, they're going to be more successful and they're going to replace the people who are not risk takers. I think you're advocating for the middle path, right? There's the move fast and break things turns out to be um, move fast and pay a lot of expensive legal fees when the inevitable ethics disputes and lawsuits arise. Moving slowly and not trying to break anything means that nothing ever changes and you, I mean, you just don't, you miss out on the opportunity. Then, then there's the main path, which is, you know what, five miles over the speed limit is usually okay on the highway if it's not busy. <laughs> and then if, if you do get pulled over by the cops, be polite, answer their question. You know, like that's sort of the middle path of push a little bit, but not too hard. Well, I, and I would challenge you that they, that they can go a little bit further. Yeah. Um, uh, 20 miles over without the speed taking, limit. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, well you know if it's uh if you've got some kind of tracking device yeah. or if you're following a truck that's going 20 miles over you know you probably okay. are yeah. pretty conscientious that uh you, you know you'll, you'll be okay with that um but no my point is that there are opportunities that are consistent with the rules and understanding those rules uh, enables people to pursue those opportunities. And that's what I advocate, that they really examine how models can be built, how innovation can be advanced in ways that uh, are, are consistent uh, with the rules, uh, or at least with a liberal interpretation of the rules. And so it seems to me that there's uh, lots of opportunity out there for advancing innovation uh, and without going, uh, taking that uh, fast lane. Hopefully lawyers will do that. I mean, I just see so much opportunity in that gap, you know, whatever it looks like. And, but there are reasons why people don't hire lawyers, don't want to hire lawyers, think poorly of lawyers. And every single one of those reasons that Rebecca Sanford came up with for why people don't hire lawyers, every single one of those reasons is an opportunity to build a better law firm business model. And because that opportunity exists sooner or later, people are going to start taking advantage of it. And if you have the attitude that I better not rock the boat, I better not try anything risky, you lose. Like you, you just, you don't win with that attitude. You have to start figuring out how to do things better and that will make them you more successfully. But the way to do it isn't to just, you know, drive 90 miles an hour down the middle of the city, the way that some tech startups behave. So, Uh, yeah, that's a great point. Let me give you an example of that. One of the things that uh, Rebecca found in her research was that some quantity of people did not pursue a formal avenue of redress because it's plan. And and I would think that's a really hard thing to argue with. Yeah. (laughs) And certainly on a personal basis, it is. But I do an orientation program for a lawyer incubator in Chicago called the Justice Entrepreneurs Project. Oh, yeah. One of the things I tell them uh, on the first day in the the process is, you know, who understands that it's not God's plan and that there is legal recourse? 
the ministers. Uh, <laughs> go, to, go to the people of faith. So go reach out to them. Create a prepaid plan for their congregation. Uh, you know, to have conversation with how do we how do we uh, reach the people that have these problems? Because um, the creating better value, uh, creating better economic value for your congregation is a benefit for you and the community. And uh, there's opportunity there. That's a really good point. Will Hornsby, thanks so much for talking with us. We will include a link to your new website, your fairly new website in our show notes and uh, looking forward to hearing more from you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sam. Great to talk with you. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Thank you.